to look like that. Oh, God. <laughs> hey guys, this is Bruce. Uh, welcome to Combo Courses. And I'm having some issue with my other connection here. Let me just fix this real quick. Bear with me. I'm trying to. Oh my goodness. Why does that look so bad? I don't know if that's the regular. <laughs> okay, hold on a second. Damn. Why is this always. And it doesn't even matter. Oh my. All right. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with, with TikTok right now. Okay. Anyway, somebody's listening to this. So I better start. <laughs> So I've, I've got an idea here, and I want to explain to people in my own, in ways that they can understand what risk management framework is. So first of all, let's talk about, let's talk about risk. And I think that once I explain this to you, it'll make so much more sense. Everything worth anything, anything that Anytime you're going for success, there's a certain level of risk involved. And um, I'll give you an example. In your life, whether it's your relationships, if you have kids, if you're trying to do a business, if you're trying, if you're in real estate, you're trying to buy properties, no matter what it is, there's always risk, a level of risk that you have to take on, right? What do I mean by that? So let me give you a specific example. Let's say... If you're trying to buy property, if you're trying to buy property, you have to come up with a certain amount of money to put down on a home. And even if you don't, you know, come up with your own money from your savings or whatever, you have to borrow that money from another bank or from a financial institution. And there's a level of risk involved with you borrowing that money, because let's say you buy the property and the property doesn't make money, which happens from time to time. You borrow that money. And it doesn't make it doesn't make that's the risk that you're taking. The risk is think about this. The, let's break it down. The risk is the weakness um, exploited by a threat. In this case of real estate, the weakness is if you don't have if if the property that you're trying to invest in doesn't have a return on investment, it's a money pit. Now the risk is the weakness is that you lost money. You try to do it, you, it lost money, and now the, the threat is you can't pay it back, right? So you took on a risk. The risk is the probability of something bad happening. Let's take another example. Business. If you had, if you start try to start a business, if you want to start a business, um, you have to come in with some level of capital or some level of your time even. Sometimes it doesn't take any money. It just takes your time. Well, the, the risk is that you do the business and it doesn't make money. And now you wasted your time or you wasted your money to try to invest in that. You had a, an idea in your head of the return on investment being great, but it didn't make money. You took a risk. Risk is the probability of something bad happening. So now let's break this down even further. What risk management means is itemizing each one of the weaknesses. That means you document or write down, itemize, put a list together of all the risks possible, all the weaknesses possible with whatever transaction you're trying to do. This applies to relationships. You can apply this to literally all aspects of your life. Everything is actually risk management, if you think about it. In a relationship, when you first start with somebody, there's a certain level of risk. You have to learn to trust that person. 
You're taking the risk to trust this person. The risk is of the, something bad happening is that this person is a, is a liar. They're not who they say they are, that they're going to cheat on you, that they're going to do something that you didn't want them to do or that they're manipulating you. There's a risk involved, but you're taking the risk by being with that person. So what can you do? Itemize and list out all the weaknesses of the of what's going on. Write down and note all the weaknesses, all the possible things that can go wrong of those weaknesses. Well, the relationship is that this person is not who they say they are or that maybe you're not compatible or that maybe like you list everything that could go possibly go wrong. Actually, weaknesses within yourself. Maybe you have a bunch of baggage that you don't know what you want to do with. Like because anybody, I have a kid, like maybe this person doesn't want to deal with that. You write down all those things. The management comes in after you write it down. You're going to figure out how it can be exploited, like what could, bad thing can happen from this weakness, from their weakness of your partner or from your weakness. What could go wrong? You guys break up. What's what are the things that can go wrong with it? Right. And what's the impact to my life? So with risk, we're going to identify what the risk is. We're going to we're going to write down all the weaknesses. That could that can happen with yourself or with somebody else or with the business or whatever that you're trying to do. Write down all the weaknesses. Now identify what could go wrong. What kinds of things could exploit and take advantage of those weaknesses? And the last thing is determine the impact of once it goes wrong, if it went wrong. Because there is a probability that it can go wrong with anything you do in life. There's always a probability that things can go wrong, right? Risk management means itemizing all those things, identifying the weakness, identifying the threats, determining the impact to yourself, and then taking action. What does that mean? That means that you know what the risks are, you know what the impact to yourself is. Now, before it even happens, you have a, you have a tertiary plan in place that if this happens, you're going to do X. Or this is how I'm going to avoid this particular weakness. This is how I'm going to remediate or fix this particular weakness. So now it's not, that might not even happen for you. So with relationships, what you can do is say, okay, well, I have a kid. I just started this relationship with somebody. It's a weakness because some people don't want a kid. They don't, they, you have a kid that maybe some people don't want to have, you know, that's, that's a lot to take on for some people. So it's it is a weakness like it is. OK, having a kid is a blessing and blah, blah, blah. But with a, like somebody else in the relationship has to take on that responsibility. Right. At, at some point, they have to have a relationship with you and the kid. So that's a weakness. Like you got to write it down. So what what how can it be exploited? Well, there's a ton of bad things that can happen. Like maybe the that person doesn't like kids. Maybe they don't have a good really. Maybe they like kids, but they don't have a good relationship with your with your kid. Um, you know, maybe they're not, they shouldn't be around kids. You know what I mean? Maybe some people shouldn't be around. They're not good with kids. Those are things that you need to think about. Those are threats to the weakness. Now, what's the impact? The impact is to your kid. Like maybe this, they don't get along. The impact is they don't get along at all. And this kid is, is like thinking about, damn, I don't want to be around this guy. And they're impacted because that guy, that person's around. 
or that lady's around. And then the another impact is that they're scarred because this person shouldn't be around kids in the first place. Or the impact is that they get uh, in a great relationship with this new person you met and then you guys break up. And now the kid's scarred because they like that person. So those are the impacts. And you got to think about now, how could you remediate? How could you fix or avoid those things? That is risk management. What you're going to do is you're going to say, OK, well, I'm going to take it one step at a time. This is one way that you could. This is just one idea of how you can mitigate that risk, like make it so it's not as impactful to your life. You can say, well, I'm not going to let them meet my son yet because they I got to get to know this person first. That's a way that you're remediating and making it so that the, maybe the impact is a little less. I'm going to make sure I know this person first before I bring them into my house, before I let them meet my son or my daughter. I need to know this person for three months, four months, a year or whatever. And then once I know this person, I'm going to bring them in. Um, or you could say um, may maybe you only meet a person with a kid because you know that this person is good with kids. That's another way you could remediate that threat. Right. So now that you have some idea what risk management is, risk management framework is doing the same thing for organizations. So NIST 837 is doing this. It systematized the process that I just talked about. And so the way it systematizes it, that it puts it into a, like a process of breaking down the risk and identifying the risk is it says, OK, the first thing we need to do is prepare for the whole process. That's the first thing. So what? how are we preparing? We're identifying the landscape we're identifying what system that we need to do what is the name of system where is it at what's the location of it who do i need to contact what are the assets what does it do what are we protecting like you're just getting a your feel of the landscape really is there any things already written for it is there are, is it system already out there that's preparation the next step is aside from preparation is to categorize what is the level of risk that we need to have that's very important because some systems are very, very important, just like in your life. There's some your protection of your home is super important because people value not only valuable things in your home, but your kids. Like if you have kids or if you have people you have to protect in your home, that's super valuable asset. Right. And in an organization, same thing like they, that system has very important information that needs to be protected. And that's what you're doing is protecting that particular information, that particular system or whatever. So we talked about preparation, knowing the landscape. Categorization is what level of risk do we have to, to do? It's cate security categorization to be exact because you're determining what level of security we need. A classified system is going to have a different level of class, uh, different level of protection that's necessary than, like, let's say, a, a web server that's public with publicly available information. Two different levels. Now that you've identified those levels, a low, a moderate, or a high, now we have to select the controls. What features can we put on this system to protect our system? What features can we put on the system to make sure that the impact is less if the threats exploit the weaknesses, if that, if that makes any sense? So the controls, there's a huge set of controls. There's like a library of all the controls that you can use. And basically, it's a, it's, it's a breakdown 
of all the best security practices that you could possibly use on your system. And a lot of tailoring goes into this because you're not going to use all thousand controls that are identified in the NIST 853. You're just going to use what is what's needed. To give you an example of your own life, your, your home's going to need a, a certain level of security controls that probably your car by itself might need something, a completely different set of, of protections. Or uh, your coffee mug in your job that's sitting on your desk will lead a whole different level. You maybe don't even care about it. Like if it's gone, like you buy another one, right? Different levels of threats. Like you're going to protect your home or your car more than you're going to protect that mug or whatever is at your office sitting on a desk somewhere. Different levels are going to require different levels of security. You know, you might just take that mug or whatever and put it in your desk and be done with it. No lock, no nothing. Just like you walk away. And that's the, the level of security controls that you put on it. But your home, you got locks on the doors, locks on the windows. Maybe you have a security system. You got security cameras outside. You've got a gun in the house, whatever. Right. You got all these different controls. That's the same thing with the NIST 853 and the NIST 837. It breaks all this stuff down of how you're going to identify the what risk levels that you need based on impact of this. If the system went down, what is the impact to our organization? What's going to happen to us? That's the categorization. Then selecting the controls. What level of controls do we need? That's based off of what level it is. Because if it's a low level, like the coffee mug, you don't really need that many controls. But if it's like your house, you're going to need a lot of controls. In fact, you might even want to go overboard with it. So that selection of the security controls. Then next is implementation of the controls. How do we put these controls in place? And the level of effort is really determined by how many controls that you have to do. And the level of controls that you need are based off of what category the system is, if it's a high, moderate, or a low, right? So the level of effort, it's like a domino effect. If you have a really high level of effort, you have top secret information, it's going to need a lot of controls. And then if you have a lot of controls selected, it's going to take a lot of work to apply those, to implement all those controls. Implementation means installing patches, putting in a multi-factor authentication, and then non-technical things like making sure this physical security is, is in place. You might have to have seven foot fences outside. You might have to have uh, uh, some kind of sensors outside the area. You might have to have a 24 hour guard going around the facility or something. It depends on what level of security, what, what level of protection we're doing here. Right. Um, so implementation of controls, that's what it is. Implementing, putting it in, installing it, configuring. That's what that means. And then. It's assessing the controls. Did we really put those in controls in place? So it's kind of like a trust but verify type thing. Trust but verify, meaning, yeah, you know, I trust that you put it in there. I trust that you did what you're supposed to do, but we're going to validate it. We're going to verify that it's there. And that's the assessment portion. We're going to we're going to walk through and make sure that there's seven foot fences. We're going to make sure that you're you if you're supposed to have. Your policy states that you're supposed to have sensors. We're going to make sure we're going to walk through and make sure it has sensors. And you're not going to do this yourself. You might have a third party come out and do that for you to make absolutely sure that you didn't overlook something. And it's, it's less about whether or not you trust them rather than it's more about maybe they missed something. Because a lot of times if you're doing anything super technical, sometimes or if you're writing something, sometimes you overlook things. 
You just overlook things like or your interpretation of what's supposed to happen is not necessarily um, doesn't meet the compliance with the organization's interpretation or the upper level organization's interpretation. So a lot of times it's, it's assessing means getting in line with what is supposed to happen and making sure everybody's on the same page rather than saying, well, we don't trust you. We're going to look under everything and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's more like making sure all of us are on the same page and you didn't miss anything. And um, you're not kind of dismissing certain controls that need to be done. Or at the very least, you identify, OK, this thing is wrong. We need to fix this. So that's assessing the actual implemented controls. And then what we're going to do is we're going to uh, get authority and authorization to operate. That means um, somebody in charge, somebody who's upper level person, like a, C, a CIO or something like that, is going to sign off and say, yes, we've we've had these implemented. We know what control levels we have to have. We know, we've had it implemented and we've had it assessed. Now, um, let me see what's left on here. I'm going to take responsibility for this system. And I've looked at everything. So somebody in charge writes their name on a document saying, yes, we've looked at this. And they have like they've looked at the package and said, OK, we have controls here. Um, somebody's already assessed it. And now I'm going to sign off on it. They're usually very thorough because they don't want to put their name on something that hasn't been done. Like, let's say <laughs> and this happens from time to time. People say that they did something or they pencil whip something, but they didn't really implement it. And then it wasn't really assessed. So the final thing is for somebody to look over the the final person looking at it is a person who's going to take some responsibility for everything that's happening. And um, what I'm talking to you about is GRC in a nutshell. This is a big part of GRC. Whether you're doing this for the government or for the private sector or for any kind of financial sector, healthcare, industry, retail, you name it, all of them do some level of GRC and what I'm talking about right now is managing the risk. That's all it is, risk management. The last step in the NIST 800 process is actually an ongoing step, which is continuous monitoring. That means that systems are always changing, right? Um, things are constantly changing. So what you're doing is making sure that you got, your organization is keeping up with it. If there's a change that happens, and changes happen all the time, and so when there's a change, you have a process in place that says, OK, we've we see this change here. What's the impact to the organization? So you're constantly monitoring the impact of those changes or if there's a major upgrade, uh, as there always are. Um, there's always some sort of security patch. There's always some kind of upgrade. There's always some kind of huge change that has to be made so that the organization can stay afloat and, and make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to do as far as the mission or the business. So they're keeping on top of all that stuff. Um, that is what that's in a nutshell, that's risk management framework. Now we've explained what you do for that in your life so we can get an idea of what risk management is. And it's not this nebulous word uh, phrase. And I'll explain to you what NIST 837 is in a, like from a bird's eye view. That is what it is. And if you're interested in knowing more about this, I've got courses on combocourses.com, combocourses.net. 
go ahead and check it out. There's discounted ones. There's free stuff that you can like download, like sample it because you might not want to purchase it or maybe you're not that far enough in your career yet. But there's free things that you can check out to actually figure out whether or not you want to do it or if it's something to enter. This is a part of cybersecurity, by the way. This is a part that's not talked about in cybersecurity, but it pays very, very well. And there's not many people doing it. There's a high demand for it, but there's not many people like there's not many people watching me right now. This is not interesting. I'm not hacking. I'm not, you know, but what I will say is that it has there's money involved. You know, you can get a great salary from this and it's very stable. All right. I'm going to go ahead and answer some questions starting off from. Let me see here. Where can I start? What are your thoughts on um, CMMC? So CMMC, if I'm not mistaken, is a maturity. I don't I don't do this. I do NIST 800. But NIST 800 is like a big brother of the CMMC. I know that CMMC is for smaller outside organizations that support the Department of Defense and federal organizations. It'll be for an organization who, say, has some sort of widget that they sold to the federal government, and they have to meet certain guidelines and certain uh, compliance to be in line with protecting the information of the government. Um, and then I know it's like a, a lighter, it's like NIST 800 light. It has like, <laughs> it has like a 10th of the amount of controls that are needed to do, to make sure the systems are, um, managing risk effectively. So that much, I know at some point I'd like to break this all down. I've got a couple videos about what I walked through the CMMC process and the difference between that and the NIST, um, 800. 171. But um, I would like to talk a lot more about it, but have a little bit more time. Somebody said NIST 853 Rev 5 is CMMC's daddy. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. Like It's a big, big brother to it. It's way more intense. I, I feel like having glanced at the CMMC and, and the NIST 800 171, I feel like it's like a tiny fragment of what the NIST 800 is. So if you know NIST 853 and NIST 837, you'll have a very good idea of what MCMMC is and what they're trying to do. So I can't speak on it right now. I would like to like break all of it down and um, bring, bust out some slides and things like that to explain it better. Uh, let me see. Somebody said that they have their thumbnail designer. Yeah, bring it on, man. Send me an email. I'm always looking for new talent. Because all I do is make the videos. I don't really go into the thumbnails and stuff. I had somebody do it for me before. I did like a few of them. But um, didn't do didn't do too many. I did like 10 of them. Um, what do you think about CompTIA Plus to get into this field or, or it in general? Um... I think that uh, getting just a, and this is a hot take. This is just from my experience doing this for some time. And I know that a lot of the gurus out there who have been also making six figures or, or whatever more might disagree with me. But this is my hot take on it is that just a, just a certification alone is going to still going to be hard for you to get your foot in the door at a job. Um, 
That said, you should still, I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm saying don't rely on just that. Um, what you're going to try to do is do the, like, get some hands-on experience is what you need to focus on as much as possible. Skills, be able to hit the ground running when you get into those these positions. Get as much experience as you can. Experience is king. Um, I would say try to get like a local job. N number one, get the knowledge. Like this is one thing that some of the gurus like paper over. Like <laughs> They're being contacted by people who are in a whole different career path and career. And they're like, go get the CCNA. Just all you got to do is get the CCNA. And these guys are like been doing IT since they're 19 and have a freaking, you know, <laughs> I was like, dude, these people or contacting you have no experience and no knowledge at all. So I'm telling you, first step is get the knowledge, get the IT knowledge. Now, what you can do is take CompTIA and take the curriculum and learn it from there and break it down and do some self-study and do it on your own. Um, the best case scenario is take your time and go into a college course. If you have the time and money and energy and resources to do it, college is, is going to be a bachelor's degree as well. I would recommend go for that. It's going to take you like three, four years. But some people don't have the time, money or experience to do that, um, you know. And so, yeah, uh, certifications can get you there with a proper skill set and the knowledge because you, you, you can get in with no experience, but it's going to be really hard to get in with no knowledge. So get as much knowledge as you can and get one of those entry level help desk field tech type positions to get in the door. Um, after studying and after you get your your certification, get yourself in the door and then start gathering experience with that. So that's what I would recommend that you do. Focus on experience and the knowledge. And then somebody said thoughts on WGU. Yeah, you can use an organization like the WGU, which is a legit college accredited college that I've heard a lot of good things about. So you could use something like that to kind of build up as you're you know, use your job that wherever you work currently to fund your degree and then spend time to actually do the work that it's going to take to get the knowledge and the skill set, the hands on skill set to learn IT and then break into IT that way. That That's one thing you could do. Um, let me see. Also, network with people and ask questions. Yes, that's another great thing. Start where you are is another thing I tell people is wherever you're at. Like if you're in retail, if you're in a restaurant, hotel management, if you're in um, health, if you're in the healthcare industry, some of these things lend themselves to doing IT because they're looking for actively looking for somebody who's in that field who wants to do IT. And you could transition right at your job. I've done it myself. I was in the military. I was a I was a physical security guy. I, I was a weapons specialist. I had nothing to do with IT. And then I was a geek, though, and I transitioned from being a physical security guy over to computers. And so you can do that laterally, if whether you work in Walmart or in Target or wherever, wherever sector you're, sector you're in, sometimes they'll have a way to laterally change your career path from this, from X to Z. And so that's one thing you can do is network within your whatever you're working right now. And try to get the experience that way. Okay, let me see who else is talking to me here. A lot of people in and out on TikTok today for some reason. That's weird. Let me see. What kind of salaries can you expect in this field? Entry level here, struggling to make ends meet. 
Um, the salaries get pretty good. So that's why a lot of people are flocking to IT in general, because the salaries get pretty good. And once you start specializing, the salaries get even better. So the average salary of an entry level help desk person is probably like 45,000 a year, probably starting off around 40. If you have zero experience and all you have is like an A plus or security plus certification in your local area doing field tech work, you're probably going to be making like 30, 40 dollars an hour, maybe, maybe. And that's if you can get your foot in the door with no experience, um, maybe even 20 dollars an hour. But, you know, the thing is, wherever you can start to get the experience is going to build you up because right after that, like, let's say you get that job work, make $20 an hour working at doing field tech work for Comcast or some local company or something. And then you're going out doing like fixing their routers, fixing like desktops or whatever, making sure they have an internet connection and you're learning on the job. You do that for about a year, eight months, something like that. Now you've built up enough experience to level up and you might even be able to level up in the company that you're in that company that you're in. Now, if you happen to already be an IT person, this is not your path. Like your path is different and you could be making upwards of it. Let's say he's already at 45 or 50. Hell, with a certain certification and some knowledge and experience under your belt, you're looking at 60, 70, you know, depending on where you're at. That's a lot of money. I'm in the Midwest. So you know, 80, 70, 80 is actually quite, it's quite nice here. If you're on the East Coast, you're looking already at like 80, 90, um, which might not still be enough. So you might be able to get yourself a professional level cert. And some of those are worth 100,000. So there's a there's tiers and there's levels to this. There's tiers and there's levels to this that will allow you to kind of progress. And that's one of the great things about IT is it's constantly growing out and it's growing deeper and you have a you have the opportunity to kind of grow with the market. It depends on your specialization. You can specialize in cloud and cybersecurity in programming in pen testing. There's many different aspects of this and each one of them have different salary ranges. I would say overall, the salary range is going to depend on what the job title is, what part of the country you're at and your skill set is going to determine what salary you're going to be at. So just to give an example, a help desk, typical help desk person, I think is around 50, 150,000. Let me just look it up here real quick. It's like 150,000, 50,000, I should say, $50,000 a year. Um, let me see, help desk, make sure I'm not lying to you, help desk, uh, average salary. This is an entry level type position and it's saying 20,000 and it depends on where you're at in the country, to be honest with you. Let me let me show you here what I'm talking about. So. I didn't let me hold on. Let me see if I can share my screen real quick. Share screen. Um, it's going to be this, that, bam. Yeah, there we go right there. Fifty thousand. Um, that's for an average help desk person. And it's not even putting in how many years, because normally they expect you to have like a year of experience. Like when they say entry level, they don't mean zero experience. That's different. Zero experience is different from entry level in IT. It's a really a misconception when some people think that entry level means no experience and they usually want you to have a year of experience. Anyway, there you go. Desktop specialist salary, average 50 all the way down to 35, but that's in the low 
uh, tier. So you're usually making about 40,000. That's kind of what I was saying, 40,000 ish on the high end, 50,000. But and then on the high end, uh, this is median and then high end 73. So let me show you another job title. Uh, let me see. Let's try cloud specialist just to show you how varied the prices, I mean, the salaries are. Let's say it's in Virginia. Cloud specialist. And this is not working with me. So let's just get out of this. I don't know what this is doing here. Let's say cloud specialist here. Cloud computing average salary in India. No, 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 no. Let's just say in general. So it should look in the United States. Okay, yeah, there you go right there. So average salary is around 85000 per year, but that's they're not calculating in how many years of experience that they expect you to have and all that kind of stuff, which is a factor. And it also depends on where you, what part of the country that you're in. And let's, let's look at mine, which is ISO, Information System Security Officer. So top earners, 140,000, um, 75% of the people making 123. Average is about 107. This is accurate. Yeah, this is very, very accurate. This is something I do on a regular basis. And yeah, that, I would say this is absolutely correct. And I've worked in different parts of the country. That's This is right. So that's kind of how much you you can make in different parts of IT. Whenever, you know, just keep in mind, security is a very huge field. It's it's not just one thing. It's many different. There's many different aspects of cybersecurity you can go into. Many different aspects of IT in general you can go into. So just keep that in mind when you're thinking about salaries. Um, let me see here. I'm getting a bachelor's degree in computer Information systems, BS, with three different paths, information systems, IT, and enterprise business systems. What do you think is better? Um, it depends on what you want to do. I would say that a computer information systems degree right now is super hot. Um, in any, any one of the computer degrees would do well. Let me see. Three paths. Oh, three paths. You're in computer science. Okay, I misunderstood you. You're in computer information systems already. And there's three different ways you can go. Information systems, IT, or enterprise business systems. I would do either information systems and IT. That's what I did. And the reason why is because I I, I just think I maybe it's just my own preference. Like I'm trying to be a little bit more on the learn the technical stuff. And so IT and information systems leans a little bit more into the technical side rather than the business side, which I don't know the reason why I didn't do the business side, because I had the same kind of thing offered to me. The reason why I didn't do it is because, and it was a great choice that I didn't, because business enterprise systems, I'm thinking enterprise business systems, depends on the curriculum, but when I was going through University of Phoenix, um, <laughs> which um, anyway, so I figured it was more of a management type curriculum because reading through it, it felt like more of a management curriculum. Whereas when I read the IT and information systems, it was more about applying those tech, the technology 
into an, a large environment, which gave me a better understanding of how that works. And then there was also specializations that I could do from there that were more technical because we had a lot of hands-on with networking and that's kind of more what I wanted to do. So I would say, uh, I, but either one of those is good because a corporation is going to take a bachelor's degree in STEM, which is science, technology, um, engineering, and mathematics with, uh, with experience in computers. So I would say what you really need to focus on is trying to get into experience while you're in school. Don't wait till you're out of school. Is a master's degree important to career prof uh, progression? Um, it's really important if you're trying to be a manager in IT. If you're trying to be any kind of manager in cybersecurity or IT, it's very competitive in some organizations. And they usually are looking for somebody with a bachelor, a master's degree um, and with a lot of experience. So a master's is really good for master for a management position. Otherwise, um, bachelor's is fine but it it depends I, there's some organizations that uh are wanting you to have a master's like i know that there's a couple colleges i wanted to work at and teach at and they they required a master's they're like they don't accept any exceptions you must have a master's degree and i imagine because you'd be teaching other people who are getting a master's degree i don't know why but um i couldn't be a professor because i didn't have a master's degree at certain colleges uh, i've taught at colleges before but the ones that were really paying, they wanted me to have a master's degree and I have it. And then there was a couple times when a few organizations, more than one, maybe four or five organizations I worked for, they had a position to be a manager and they required that you have a master's degree. And all the people who were competing all had a master's degree. So that's where you kind of need to have one. Another one is like if you're in a certain positions, like a science position, um, architect positions, high level positions, sometimes they require that you have a master's degree for whatever reason at that organization. So if you're trying to progress in those ways, an architect, um, a scientist, um, a principal manager type position, a CIO, that kind of director, master's degree is going to be something that is going to make you more competitive to progress in that direction. So is what I've noticed, you know, just take it with a grain of salt. That's just my anecdotal um, what I've seen happen. Um, somebody said, would you say a master's degree in this field is worth it? Yeah, it's, yeah, again, like kind of piggybacking on what I was saying before. It depends on what you're trying to do. I'd say for the majority of us who are not trying to be a, if you're not trying to be a professor, a manager, an architect, uh, a director, a CIO, then a bachelor will be fine. But if you want to progress to those things, but somebody else said it, Boss Memes said a master's probably better for management position. Exactly. That's what I found. So if you're if you're thinking that you're going to go in that direction, then definitely go for a master's degree because it's going to make you way more competitive and you can go straight for those kind of positions once you get in your foot in the door and get experience. Um, what path for a bachelor's what path for bachelors in information systems, IT, information systems, or business systems? Yeah, we already talked about that one. Let me keep going here. If you get a cert like an A+, do you qualify for entry level? Um, there are entry level jobs that are it's going to help you to get have a certification in A+. 
it certainly doesn't hurt you because it is a marketable certification and you can find it will help you on your on your on your uh, resume. So it's not going to hurt you. But a lot of times what they're looking for for entry level in IT is actual experience. Um, what you want to do if you have no experience is look for jobs with no experience. They, they don't require no experience. A lot of times they don't even require you to have a GED. But I mean, a, a diploma, they require you to have a GED, college equivalent. I mean, a high school equivalent um, diploma. Um, anyway, so what I would encourage you to do if you have no experience is look on Dice, on Monster, on um, Indeed, LinkedIn, all those sites. Look for entry level, no experience. Filter, no experience, if you have no experience. And A-plus will help you out because you'll be able to go into the interview saying, yeah, I have an A-plus certification. I've been doing a lot of study on my own. I don't have experience in this, but I have built a lab. I have, I know how to use Unix, Linux operating systems. And I have, you know, I went very thoroughly went through the A-plus so I know how to do networking a little bit. I know how to do X, Y, and Z a little bit. You'll be able to use that as leverage to get your foot in the door easier. And you'll feel more comfortable, too, because you'll know the stuff. You know, if you get through there and you're not, like, not doing brain dumps to pad. Like, I think, I suspect a lot of people are seeing this field. And what they're doing is they're like, I, all I got to do is get this certification. Then I brain dump it. That means go to the Internet and find the answers to the test and go take the test, pass it pay 50, 150 bucks, whatever it is, 250 bucks, get the certification. But all they did, they don't have any information. They don't have the knowledge. They don't, they, they just brain dumped it and passed the test. And they're like, I'm going to go ahead and go get a hundred thousand dollars. You got to have the knowledge. When you come in, they're going to expect you. If you're, if they're paying you 60,000, 70,000, 80,000, they expect you to actually know the information. If you don't, they're going to, they're going to point you out and be like, you're out of here. You know, you don't want to be that guy. You, you want to be a professional engineer. So you need to take your time to get that A plus, that security plus, that network plus, whatever. Know the information, understand it. And that's going to take that's going to take quite a bit of your time. There's a reason why everybody's not getting into this market, because there's a big learning curve here. <laughs> it takes time. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying it's going to take some time, money and energy on your part. It's going to take some blood, sweat and tears. For you, a certain level of risk has to be assumed on you to actually get into this field. And then, but once you put in that blood, sweat, and tears, that not, and you got that knowledge under your belt, and you get that A plus, that security plus, and you earned it, now you can go in there in that interview or apply for those jobs with confidence and say, "Look, I know how to do. I know how to connect an operating system to a network. I know how to do Linux. I know how to do." Mac OS. I know how to do. I, I fix my own computer all the time. I have my own network at home. I have my own firewall. I set it up. I know how to do this. Now I'm ready to work for your this company or that company or whatever. So put in the work that it takes to get the the job. Don't just brain dump this stuff. Um, and I'm suggesting you did that, but I suspect a lot of people are. Um, somebody said um, if. Uh, if start tech side first, if I start tech side first, then you walk, you can walk your talk better. If you get into the tech side first, you can walk, walk the walk and talk the talk better. I agree. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. You're welcome. 
currently doing part-time help desk 2k awesome oh that's awesome that's great arturo that's that's how you want to do it that's how you do it right there need more people saying stuff like that um because that experience you're going to get now you need to work on your resume put that stuff on your resume all the things you're doing make sure it's on your resume so that way you'll be more marketable um somebody said um i just joined do you think that any of these jobs would train you without a degree, just certifications. There are some out there, but they're hard to get. So they're usually not going to be work from home. You Some some are, but they're hard to find. Um, they're usually going to be like a local help desk, entry level IT, IT support, customer service. These are some of the key words, key phrases you can use to find these types of jobs. Um, you want to go broad. Like type in just IT entry level, like you want to do stuff like that or help desk entry level. And you want to say filter on no experience. And then um, you'll find those jobs. You'll find jobs that say, look, we just want you to have a GED, at least have a GED. Um, and they're expecting you to come in with some knowledge. But then once you get in the door, they'll actually train you on the job and you stay there long enough to learn everything you need to learn, get good. Or, or determine if you don't want to do it. Let, this is not for everybody. Like people are getting getting distracted by the shiny object and saying, oh, I want to go in there. I'm going to make 100000 and stuff. This is this is a – the learning curve on this is going to take you some time. And, and most people, I'm telling you right now, do not have the patience to even do basic IT. Do not even have the patience to do – I think most people can do it if they apply themselves, if they actually put the time in to learn it. But most people just don't have the patience for it. They just don't have the patience. And then there's a whole nother. Once you even have the patience for that, there's a whole nother level of patience that you need the deeper you go. It's really, it eliminates a lot of people from doing this work, especially Americans. <laughs> especially Americans. What I've noticed is that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, immigrants who are doing, uh, especially cybersecurity, because most Americans don't have the patience to do to do this work. You know, I mean, it's a sad, sad thing, but that's why we don't have enough people doing this job because there's not enough people doing it. Do you need experience to pass GRC exam? Um, so G, I'm, I assume you're talking about CGRC from SC2 Square, which I have, formerly known as the CAP. I believe they want you to come in with some level of experience before you even take the test. But to take the test is pretty much just the NIST 837, the NIST 800 um, dash 60, volume two, the FIPS. I'm breaking down what you need to read. Um, the FIPS uh, 199, the FIPS 200. You probably want to check out the NIST 853. It's just those documents. That's all it is. That's that's all GRC is. Like the actual test is is not hard it's just those documents and that's pretty much it <laughs> i mean um experience wise it would help you to understand the language that they use because ic2 square has this weird thing with language that other certifications don't have like i've taken comptia i've taken um cisco certs i've taken uh, so many different vendor certs and they don't have this issue with language that IC2 Square. IC2 Square tests 
like the CGR, the CGRC and the CISSP and the others, the way they word the test is very academic. And um, somebody said CGRC wants you to have three years of experience before you sit for it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot for that, Black Ops. I appreciate that. Yeah, I forgot how many years. Um, so anyway, they want you to have three years of experience. But at, when you take the test, what I'm saying is it's you don't have to, the, you're not, <laughs> the only way I was drawn from the experience was when I was trying to figure out what they were talking about, because it sounded like I was reading an academic paper. You know, how academic papers, if you ever read any white papers or anything, or college papers, like that's written from professors, professors, they're using all these unnecessarily big ass words that you got to like, you're not using those on a regular basis. So you're like, what the hell are you talking about? And then when you break down what the word means, you're like, oh, okay. Why didn't they just say they had to use ubiquitous? Why didn't they just say, you know, a more obvious word here? So they'll use like a bunch of terminology and words that are very, you need to already have been there to understand what the hell they're trying to say. It's almost like the people who wrote it have no experience or very little experience in the actual real world. It feels like that to me. That or they had somebody who had practical knowledge and then write the test. And then they had an academic person go and rewrite it and put all these stupid, big scholarly words in there with a bunch of inside baseball shit that's not going to help you. I don't know why they wrote the test like that. The people who do this work is people like myself, blue collar type people who are use regular language. You know, like you're not it's. I just wish they would make the test more accessible. I passed it. This is something from somebody who passed the test. I have a CISSP. I have a stupid GCRC. You know, it's just I feel like when it's too academic and they use too many unnecessarily fluff words that make themselves look smart or whatever, it doesn't add to – it doesn't – it's not telling you how – how skilled the person is on that particular thing. It's all it's doing is adding extra levels of of um, stupidity in there to me. To me, I just it's one of the things about, and I know it's controversial to say that tr it, about Trump that is is good is that he uses he uses language for his audience. He knows who his audience is. And he just throws red meat at him all the time. Like he's he knows who they when he says something, they understand the people who it's stuff that they're thinking and they're talking about their to their friends using the same language. They're all talking the same way. I know because I work around these people and they talk that way. They talk like him. <laughs> they talk like him. And I just wish the test would do that. Like talk to your audience. I'm your audience. Your audience is not academic academia, right? Academia, they speak differently. They have white papers, they're scientists, they're stuff like that. Like the people who are taking the certifications are people who who are not just academia, people who might not have a college degree, who make people might not have a huge um, vocabulary. You know, it's not to say you can't understand it. It's just I don't like the way they word the tests and just my personal opinion about it. Hope that answers that question. I kind of beat the horse that horse did. Um, let me see. Let me see here. I got a bachelor's degree in computer science. 
congratulations. Somebody said A plus means that you'll know the difference between a PC, ZY, ZY, XYZ when asked to replace or TS things, troubleshoot things. Um, I, I would say I would say A plus is for people who are very much beginners. Um, if you don't know the terminology, then there's some terminology you really need to know, right? Like I did say, well, you know, they're using too many words that people don't understand, but there's certain things that you do. There's a common body of knowledge that you do need to know. And there's certain words and phrases that are very unique and how they use it in IT that uh, are not you. It's used different in other spaces. So there's certain things you do need to know. And if you're coming off the street, like from a whole nother career path and you don't know IT from anything, then A plus is a great start for people who know nothing. And it's not going to be easy for people who know nothing. But if you know something, if you've been doing this for a while, build, building your own PC and stuff, then A plus probably you don't want to waste your time with that. You might want to go to something else like a security plus or something. Um, let me see. Bachelor's degree. Let me see. Are you talking about tax or post tax? Oh, talking about the salaries um, is uh, before tax, by the way. <laughs> yeah, before tax. Is the CISSP going to guarantee a high income along with a clearance, 10 years in the Navy and a master's degree? Nothing is going to guarantee you a high income, but it's going to it's going to increase your probability. All the things you mentioned increase your probability of a high income. Um, it would be hard for you not to get a high income. <laughs> I it's that's the truth. It would be high. It would be hard for you not to get a high income. Um, if you have a CISSP, you got 10 years in the Navy and you have a master's degree and you have a clearance, like all those things, you'd be you'd have to look for a low paying job. You'd literally and I've met people who have a low paying job and have all the things you have. So, no, it's not a guarantee, but. It's unless you have a real shitty resume. I mean, I don't know. And that's a lot of times that's the problem with people not getting what they should be getting paid is that they're 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 the way they position themselves on their resume is not good. And so what you want to do right now is position yourself. I read I'm reading this book called Positioning right now. It's an old like 1950s book about marketing. And it's really interesting because it's talking one of the things it talks about is finding. I don't know how else to say this except to say it in French, but I don't know the French word for it. <laughs> Creneau, finding the hole. I know what you're thinking, but just for a moment. Put your mind on non dirty things, finding the hole. And what it means is there's a space that people are looking for. There's a space you can get in where other people are looking for you. And you're going to find yourself into that space. And it's the same thing with resume marketing, like where you're marketing yourself. You're looking for people who are looking for you. And then you're providing there's a demand out there and you're you're supplying the demand. And so you want to think that way when you're doing your resume. They're looking for people with a clearance. They're looking for people with five years of experience or more. They're looking for people with a at least a bachelor's degree. You have all those things. You need to put all that stuff on your resume. And then you need to put all the things that they need. The Navy has all, no, all due respect to the Navy. The Navy has the most weird 
outlandish, strange acronyms I've ever seen in my life. In my life. Don't put that shit on your resume. You need to articulate. If you, if you had a system called ComNavMar, right, which is a common stupid Navy acronym that's an acronym within an acronym within a freaking acronym, you don't want to put that kind of shit on your resume. You want to put what the system is uh, rather than what the stupid acronym is. Because it means something in the Navy, but it doesn't mean shit outside the Navy. So just remember that. You know what I mean? It's the same thing with the Air Force. Air Force has a bunch of dumbass acronyms for secret systems or, or whatever, right? You just need to articulate. This was a very important system that was built on Red Hat 5, right? You don't have to put the secret name or the acronym for it. You just need all they need to know is this was a Red Hat, a, a Red Hat 8 system, a, a Red Hat Enterprise Server version 8. And I was the system administrator. For this, that that's what they need to know. They don't need to know that it was a ComNavMar five mark system that was ahead of the Com uh, Centcom AOS. You know, like who gives a damn? And nobody understands what the hell that is, right? Except other people who are in those positions. So you've got to be able to find where you fit in in the civilian market using their words. You have to use their language, which is not Camp Comnavmar or whatever the hell. Thoughts on overemployment? Great question. Great question. So overemployment, for those who don't know, means uh, people who work more than one job. That means that you work two jobs. So I've done this before. Um, not easy. So what I would say is that people are doing what they got to do. Um, this is a very volatile market. Um, we're trying to keep up with the with the cost of living here in the U.S. I totally don't blame people for trying to do this. And um, some companies do. Some people, some companies do not want you working for another company if you're working for them, which is, in my mind, a little bit stupid because we the, this getting harder and harder to live in this economy. It's just getting harder and harder, and there's no signs of slowing down. That said. The way to do it correctly is to have one job. Number one, don't do any conflict of interest. Um, what I mean is don't try to work for two competing companies. Don't do not do two things in the same space for, for the same client or something like that. Like They'll tell you. You'll know if it's conflict of interest. You'll know. Like Nobody ought to tell you. You'll know. Do not do conflict of interest because you can get yourself in legal trouble with that. If the organization tells you, um, you cannot work for another company and they have you put it in writing. I will not work for another company. Then now you're legally you can't do it. So I'm not telling you to break any kind of rules or laws or policies or anything like that. Don't do it. Don't don't break any laws. Don't break any, you know, so don't do any conflict of interest. Don't break your the policy with a good company. Right. If it's a bad company, then you probably should leave. But if it's a good company, don't screw up what you already have. Right. Um, so. That's what I would say about it. Do not work two full-time jobs. It's dumb. Like, it's just stupid. Don't do it. Um, probably need to be working from home first because if you work from home, you can actually do it. You could have one full-time 40-hour-a-week job or 32-hour-a-week, and then the other job do a part-time you do where they only want you to work uh, to fulfill a certain task, right? And that might only take 
16 hours for that whole week or something. And then they pay you X amount of dollars for those 16 hours that you work for that week. And then they pay you once a month, whatever it is. So um, do one full time and one part time is what I would recommend. Make sure that your full time job knows about what you're doing. That if you're doing any moonlighting or something like that, if, the, if you have this other job, tell the full time job, hey, I've got this other thing going on. Right. And, and make sure because you don't want to screw up what you already have, especially if it's a good position. Um, what else can I say about it? It's it's very difficult. I wouldn't do it if you have a family because um, you're going to be you're going to be working continuously. Um, that's about it. Um those are those are the things that I learned having done this before. If you're interested in knowing more about how to find remote jobs and how I did this before, I wrote a whole book about this, a short, short book. Go find it in uh, combocourses.net, short breakdown of how to find those jobs, like a downloadable that you can use for like a resume template of like wording that you should use to find um, work from home positions because that's how you could get overemployment. And um, and then like a breakdown of everything I've done to find jobs and to find remote work and how I've been able to do this for like the last seven years. Um, I'm tired of companies asking for four and five experience years, years of experience for a SOC analyst. And I have a CYSA plus pen test. Well, what I would say is a lot of times companies, what they'll do is they'll ask for more years so that they can. It's kind of a it's kind of a psychological tactic. So what they'll do is they they want five years of experience and then you'll apply for it, but you only have two. And then so what they can do then is say, well, we we're looking for four years of experience, but it looks like you only have two. So we're going to pay you X. I think it's I think they do a little bit of that. And what I'm trying to say is just because they're asking for four doesn't mean you don't apply for it. But you have two years of experience. They're asking for four apply for it anyway and ask for what you're asking for and then try to meet them in between in the middle somewhere that's what i that's what i could i would do if i were you so so do that um so somebody's trying to invite to the live i've got two different lives going on so they won't my other audience won't be able to hear you so i'm not going to do that right now as soon as i can figure out how to do that Maybe I can, I would like to do lives, but if you're on YouTube, I'll take you. Like if you see me on YouTube and you, you want to join me on YouTube and ask questions or something, then I'll, I'll do that, but not on TikTok. That might be kind of cool to do on YouTube, actually. Um, can you apply to cybersecurity jobs with, can I apply to cybersecurity jobs with my computer science bachelor's degree? Yes, absolutely. So computer... Um, cybersecurity jobs take usually somebody with, they want somebody with experience, really. Experience is really what they're looking for. Everything else is just icing on the cake, cake and sprinkles. You know, um, it's, everything else is extra. They're usually looking for a technical degree or engineering degree of some type, a STEM degree, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. They're looking for that. And then some experience in computers. So and that's not necessarily in a cybersecurity position. You could have done help desk, but you did cybersecurity. You just need to put that on your resume that, you know, you, you might have been a help desk professional. You might been you might have done um, 
I don't know, network engineering, you might have done, I don't know, CompuSec or whatever title that they have at your last job. But what you want to do is explain the security things you've done in your resume. Like if you've locked systems down, if you've applied multi-factor authentication, if you've put in secure credentials before, if you've ran scans, if you've looked at mo monitored logs, if you've upload, up installed um, things like anti-malware, if you've been a part of a, risk, uh, a response uh, team doing uh, help incident handling and I can't talk doing incident handling if you've done any of that kind of stuff you need to put that on your resume so that's the main thing but as far as the degree they'll take any kind of I know this because a lot of people I've worked for in the past and currently they don't really have a computer degree they'll have like a mathematic every now and then every at every place I've worked in there'll be like one guy who has a bachelor's degree in like mathematics or something, right? And they have experience with computers, but they're not, they don't have a computer degree. Or they'll have an engineering uh, uh, double E, they have an electrical engineering degree. And they're working in, they're doing what we're doing. They're doing GRC work, but, or they're socket analyst or whatever, but they don't, their degree is in some totally, it's, it's in the engineering field, but it's totally different. So I've seen that many, many times before. You are a great resource. Thanks. My spouse just started cybersecurity degree this semester. Oh, thanks. Appreciate the words of support. I'm studying cybersecurity, bro. I want to work remote. What can I do to make money in the meantime? I'm studying. For, um, hmm. What you want to do right now is focus on getting experience. That's what I would do. Um, what I would do is try to get experience if you have any kind of a, I don't I don't really know where, where you work at right so I, I could tell like start where you are is what I would say if you have a food truck you said your your name is food mania let's say you had a food truck I'm just I'm totally guessing what you do you have a food truck and you want to break into cybersecurity and work remotely from your food truck or something I'm just totally guessing but what you could do check this out what you could do is put the name of your food truck as the organization on your resume that of, is the organization you work for. Set up a router, a uh, wireless connection on the food truck. Set up a secure router, like where you have a guest account that allows people to go ahead and log in, but you have a secure account where you and the people in the truck or just yourself can do secure stuff like you can do banking and stuff but it's secure it's a separate connection between the guest account that people come to the food truck and just go ahead and use the password without trying to hack your stuff and your your stuff's behind a firewall and protected now what you can do is put it stuff on your resume you could put that you set up not only did you set up the router uh, a access point but you secured the access point and you had for 500 customers or 1,000 customers over the course of one year. So you want to put what you did and the impact of what you did. Um, and then you can also put things like you, you install the firewall because that's what you did. You could put, um, I don't know, other technical things on the food truck. You could do uh, um, 
I don't know, put like a gaming server that people could use on there. You could put that on your resume that you set up a gaming server there so that people could play Minecraft or so, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up, but you could set up a bunch of network stuff on the food truck and then put that literally put that on your resume and that would be legit. Like you could put food mania truck work, uh, created a, a network for food mania truck supplying network connectivity to a thousand users over the course of one year, securing the network with a firewall, X, Y, and Z firewall, a Cisco ASA firewall. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up, <laughs> but you want to put that on your resume and um, you, you want to get experience right now. So what I'm trying to tell you, um, the, that experience is going to translate to money. And that's why I'm telling you to get experience. That's the most important thing you can do other, you know, as far as other things you can do for money. I mean, you could do any other things for money. Like you could, you know, do other stuff for money. Right now, you're just trying to build out your resume so that you can eventually get that money and work from home for doing IT. Not necessarily a cybersecurity position, but IT. A broaden your horizons. Information technology is what you're trying to break into right now. Um, how can I get an internship opportunities for new learners? How can we get um, internship opportunities for new learners um they're they're all over indeed you want to check indeed linkedin dice.com monster they're all there usually they're looking for students this is why i say if you have the time money resources to do a degree it actually opens up another door of networking for you and one of those those social networking which is internships and apprenticeships and stuff like that. Cause a lot of times those internships are looking for students. So you just go right on LinkedIn on indeed on, I think Google jobs, even all of them have it. And you just look for, look for those there. I'm taking a Google certificate. I'm taking a Google cybersecurity course right now. Thoughts. Um, anywhere you can get the knowledge is awesome right now. If you're just starting out anywhere, you can get that knowledge is awesome. And the next one says, which one you prefer, Linux Essentials or Linux Plus? Um, I have a Linux Plus. It's very, very, very basic. It's not very marketable. Anywhere, whenever you're starting off, when you're starting off from scratch, anything you can do to learn is going to be helpful. It's going to boost you up a notch. Once you get the knowledge in your brain, like once you can do the skills for doing Linux yourself, or Google walks you through cybersecurity and it talks you through how to do, I don't know, Python or whatever they're teaching you there. And you can do it and you understand it and you got it. You got the cert and then move on. Now it's time to kind of level up and either go to college. to You want to be an engineer, really. That's the You want to get like at least an associate's or a bachelor's in college. But if you can't do that, if you don't have the time, money, and energy to do that, then do do uh, the next level of certifications, which is like an entry-level marketable certification, like a Security Plus uh, would be a good one. And if if, if you're done with that one, you already have a Security Plus, you got that. um, The next one's next tier is going to be a professional-level cert, which you need about three years of experience usually to do, three to four years of experience depending on the certification and you can specialize in certain things while you're doing all of that the most important thing you can do is get experience because just a certification alone is still going to make it difficult for you to actually get your foot in the door 
they're looking for experience. They're looking for people to hit the ground running. Get experience. Do what you got to do to get experience. If you have your own business, set up your own router and put that on your resume. If there's a local community and they need, they have a shitty internet connection, try to help them out, out for free. And then put that on your resume. If you work at if you're at a college, try to get be a working student or try to help them out. So you can put that on in their name of who you worked for on your resume. If you work in a retail, if you work in banking, if you work in whatever field you're in, try to do a lateral change. That means changing from being a stock clerk in Walmart over to an IT professional in Walmart. Try to do a lateral change. From start where you are and try to move on to get that experience however you can. That's what I did. That's how I did it. So I was in the military and cross trained laterally to another field. And that, you know, changed my life. So that's what you need to do. Get that experience. Full-time freelancer on the side. Yep. As an IT guy, you can put that on your resume. Um, can hack the box and try hack me be worth learning to get a job? No, not just that stuff alone won't won't win you a job. So you don't don't just rely on that is what I'm trying to say. I'm not telling you don't do it. Do it for sure. Do that. But that's a, one of the things in your toolbox. One of the that's just one screwdriver in your toolbox. <laughs> you need to build up more stuff. I would try to get real world experience. Get the knowledge first. Get, become a geek, like it really, that's one, only hack the box is one of many things you need to do. That's one tool. That's a tip of a tool. As a matter of fact, it's not even a full thing. Like, like one part <laughs> that you need to do. Certifications is also a good thing to put in your toolbox. Degree is a very good, that's a power tool you can put in your toolbox that people are going to look at and say, whoa, he, this guy's got a degree in, at WGU or whatever, from University of Phoenix, whatever it is. Um, but the biggest thing is going to be experience. Like you got to get experience. You can start where you are. If you have your own business already and you're trying to do cybersecurity, you can set up your own network and say in the resume, you can put the company you work for, which is your company. And then put the all the stuff that you did for that company. Secured the router, put in a switch, put in a firewall, put in and then when you. They interview, say, yeah, out of business, and I start putting all my own stuff in. If they ask about it, you know, tell them the truth and how awesome your network is. Be something you should brag about. You put a network attached storage area in it. You could set up a AWS cloud account with it. You could do so many things. If you have your own business, you could actually set up your own stuff. Actually, it's a great idea. You could literally set up your own business at any time. Like, there's nothing stopping you from doing this. You could set up your own business. A legit business for whatever you do, and then set up a cloud server that works like a working cloud server. Um, set up a network attached storage area. You could do a net set up a network, um, a wireless network, a wired network. Put in um, an IP uh, informa information, a um, IPS, um, an IDS. You could put in all kinds of security features on the, your own network that you built and then put all the things that you did on your resume for your business. And that, that counts. And when somebody asks, yep, I have a business doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and I set up my own network, you know, for my team. And, um, 
it's never been hacked before, right? It supported 1,500 users. It had the website had, you know, 2,000 people a month going to it. Um, we use the cloud service for this X, Y, and Z. Like that's that's one of the things you can do for experience. Experience is super important. If you just have a certification and an A plus or a security plus, and you have no experience, you can put anything on a resume. You have very little skills. It's gonna be very. It's gonna be a very hard sell. I'm not saying that you can't do it, but just hack the box is not gonna do it for you. You need more skills. I mean, it's being real with you because they're really looking for somebody who can hit the ground running. What should I do to go from a network security analyst to an engineer? Is the pay better as an engineer? Um, you have more opportunities as an as a as an engineer. I, I'm assuming you mean like a professional level per like a you're going from analyst to engineer. Usually engineers get paid better because engineers are people who are not just looking at data that's coming through and managing data analyzing data they're also setting up the actual infrastructure sometimes so and it depends like engineer is a very flexible word but normally engineering involves interfacing with multiple complex systems and putting them together and then making sure that they can work and troubleshooting them properly and um and that kind of thing so that is how you that's how you do it um, that's, if, if you, how do you go from into engineering though? So one way you can do it is have the skill set. Look for the engineering jobs. First of all, look for those engineering jobs and those engineering jobs, you know, it's going to be, you can look, find those pretty easily. Look at the, the requirements and those are the types of things that you need to do. For a network engineer it'll tell you network security engineer or network engineer you'll have a bunch of stuff off the top of my head network engineers the difference usually is going to be network engineers are guys who set up routers from scratch they're dealing with the hardware piece um and the network they're setting things up and making sure the infrastructure works Whereas an analyst usually is maintaining and monitoring the data and making sure everything's going well. An engineer is like, okay, we need to get with the architects to figure out how we're going to set this thing up. And I'm going to go ahead and install it. I'm going to turn on this virtual router or this virtual switch. I'm going to, I'm going to set this thing. I'm going to give this thing an IP address. The IP addresses are on these interfaces. Um, they got to know like open shortest path first. They got to know like, routing protocols that it's a little bit more in depth with engineering so they're setting the infrastructure up and the way you get into that field from an analyst to an engineer is to know how to engineer how to put things together how to set things up um that kind of thing is what they're ending uh difference will be a difference between a ccna and a ccnp that, that might be one difference that you could um, hang your hat on. I, I wish my, my a friend of mine, he has, he's an engineer. He's a network engineer, like one of the best I've ever seen. And that guy would be able to really articulate this, what I'm talking about here. Because I haven't been a network guy in, in a very long time. So I'm probably not the right guy to ask, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, let me 
let me see. Don't forget home labs and completing hands-on labs on the internet. Yeah, that's another great thing to use at your disposal, like home creating home labs and virtual systems on your own computer and all that kind of stuff. Wow, I got through all the questions for once. That's awesome. Okay, let me see here. Um, did you drop the link in YouTube side? Yeah, I believe the link is below, but it's just com convocourses.net. Um, convocourses.net is gonna link you, is gonna show you a link tree page, and that link tree page will have like discounts and stuff that you can go to to um that you could use to get to that remote jobs and other stuff that I have for free and for huge, huge discounts and all kinds of stuff that I do that's outside of, outside of this. Remote jobs are hard to get, bro. Yeah, they are. They are hard to get. Remote jobs are difficult. Like I've been doing this 20 years. My resume is, is really pretty good. It's very tuned into what I'm trying to do. And I found it's a challenge for me to get into remote work because it's the reason why is there's a lot of competition of people wanting to get into the remote positions that pay well. <clears throat> and so whenever I've noticed that what happens is whenever you are going for the remote positions, there there's already like 100 people who've already applied for it. <laughs> so you, it's the competition's very high. That's all it is. Like 50 40, 50 people already applied, have already put their resume in. It's like the more applicants you have, the more this is a lot of competition. There are people that are going for it and um, makes it difficult to get those positions. So you got to keep applying, though. There's a there's a method to the madness. And it's what's worked for me is to blast it out like shotgun it. Give give your resume to everybody. Be very aggressive. Be be passive with it put your resume everywhere so people are just passively finding your resume and then be very aggressive applying and applying and applying and applying and applying and then going to the interviews they didn't call you back going to the next interviews they didn't call you back going to the next they called you back but the we, you couldn't you couldn't come to an agreement go to the next interview like it was like that it was a grind i did this current job i have which is remote pays pretty good it took me man how many it took me, man, four or five. I did five different interviews. To get the five interviews, I had to apply for probably hundreds of jobs, probably hundreds. Because between people trying to, people getting access to me online, which is literally like hundreds of people contacting, like seeing my resume, I should say. There's hundreds of people seeing my resume, hundreds. And then of those hundreds, probably about a hundred of those like out of three let's say 300 people 400 people saw my resume because i'm very aggressive i got it everywhere and i'm applying all these different places like 50 60 places on three different sites out of all of those hundreds of contacts probably about a, about a hundred people emailed me or called me i'm not exaggerating it might even be more than 100 emailed me or called me and out of those 100 in, let's say, 20, 120 um, people who who emailed me or called me directly who are interested, I might have contacted back 20 of those people. 
like sending them an email, sending following up, saying, hey, I'm interested. Hey, calling them on the phone. Nah, this isn't for me. You know, no, I don't want to travel. You know, and probably 20 or 30 people going back and forth. If you count emails, probably more like 50 of just messaging back and forth and saying, nah, this isn't, this isn't, or them just not getting back with me or whatever. Probably 50. But I say legit, probably 20 people calling and you know, it just didn't work out screen going through the screening process. And then out of those 20, there was, it got down to about four that were these ones I, I want to do. And out of those four, I had about, I had about three interviews out of those four. So I narrowed it down. Like it's, it's a numbers game. And these are all remote jobs, by the way, this is how aggressive I am with it. This is how you got to be. Out of those four interviews, I had about four interviews. One just didn't, it wasn't a good fit. It wasn't like the job I was trying to do. And it's not what I do. They were looking for like a vulnerability management guy at a hospital or something. It just wasn't a good fit. So that was out. And then there was another one that I thought was going to work out. Like that one looked really good. And they were like, it seemed like they were going to call me back. I, I nailed the interview. I thought I did. I thought I killed it. And I worked there before. And they didn't call me back. I'm like, what the hell? And it was two interviews. I did two interviews and they never called me back. And I don't know why. Um, and I was waiting for them, waiting for, because that was the job I wanted. And they didn't, they didn't call me for a reason. And then, let me see, what was the third and fourth one? Oh, okay. Yeah, the third one, I actually got the last two jobs. So... Yeah, so this this is a crazy story. So I got the last two remote jobs. One was they called me back immediately, and they were like, "Yo, like we really want you. Like, we, when can you start and stuff?" And I was like, "Well, let me give me time to decide, you know, because the real reason I was trying to decide is because I was already interviewing with other people. I, as I think I told them that I said, "Hey, I'm still in the interview process with somebody else, and I got it." Actually, I interviewed today, you know, and they're like, OK, well, let us know what you what you're going to do. I had the other interview and I nailed that interview. Right. And then I had like two other interviews after that. I think I was on the second or third interview. I can't remember. They had me do like three interviews. And then. So I I got a job offer for both those jobs after going through all these hundreds of different prospects. I got two job offers. And the one job offer from the first group, they said, yep, yeah, we want to we want to get you, you know, when can you start? And um, I was wait. It, this one was like a contract position that lasts three, four months. And I was like, damn, like I got a family. I got kids to feed. I, I need to I need medical. That's the whole reason I'm going back to work because I can't pay my freaking medical expenses for my kid, me and my kids. You know, so I'm like, damn, I can't. I don't want to do just the contract work <laughs> you know, for four months and not have any insurance. You know, which I, I guess I could have just bought insurance on my own or whatever. But then there's four months later, I got to apply for another job. So I'm like, I need more, some more secure. So these other people, they said, yeah, we have an offer and it was way more secure. And so I got an offer from both. And so I called back the one that was part time. And I said, um, I said, I can't do it. I got another job. And they were like, what? And I like, what can we do to get you? I said, just what can we do? Because we really, we got to get this started. We really like your energy. Like I was fixing stuff on the call with these guys. They were giving me scenarios and I was like, oh, well, why don't you just do this? They were like, 
okay. <laughs> I was fixing stuff on the call. So they really wanted me, but I was like, I got to get take this other job. It's with the government. It's like more secure. I got medical benefits and stuff. And they were like, I understand, you know. And they were like, well, what about part-time? Like, what about if you, I said, yeah, maybe I'd be willing to do it like so a few hours a week, maybe. And they're like, okay, 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 yeah. So I ended up doing both. Like I was doing a full-time position and this part-time position with just a few hours a week. And good thing I did because this other stupid government job took like four effing months for them to, they had to do this background check. It took four months for them to, for me to get in the door with these guys. I'm like, what the hell, dude? I Anyway, so that's what happened with that. Yeah, you can get a remote job. It just takes a lot of work. Yeah, remote jobs. Uh, it, it's it's a lot of it's it takes a while, but you can do it. I mean, and I think I'm about to end this live, guys. Really appreciate everybody jumping on here from TikTok and from YouTube and everything. Um. Thanks so much for your participation. If you guys didn't know, right now I have a book out. I'm an author and a publisher and um, trying my hand at this. It's been going pretty good. If you're interested in learning GRC stuff or some of the basics of cybersecurity, I've got a bunch of books on Amazon. Go check them out. Go to combocourses.net. i got links to them on Amazon. I'm going to have a ton more material coming out. I just have to have time to actually develop it and edit it and all the kind of stuff you got to do to make it to package it and make it look pretty and more digestible. So I'm working on all that stuff. Expect uh, all kinds of risk management framework type uh, compliance type material coming out here your way. But right now I have a job. I have a, I have a book for 99 cents. For a limited time only, sometimes I give them out for free. If you're on my newsletter, you already know about this. But um, all kinds of stuff, great resources for you. Stuff that I wish somebody would have done for me is what I'm doing. Was I'm creating those things that I wish somebody would just broke it down in plain English, how to do it with practical information. But that stuff is in ComboCourses.net. Free stuff, some old free stuff that I have that's out there that you could have. Some downloadables. My resume is out there. You could download and get an example of like how to put your resume together in ATS style formats. You could just literally download it and like, you know, don't use it word for word, but like get an idea of how to word it and things. So that's that's out there. That's it, guys. Thank you so much for joining. I'll try to do this tomorrow. No promises, but um, talk to you guys later. Hasta mañana.